So this is seconds after the most recent finals of the National Basketball Association. That's one of the winning players, Dwayne Wade, and that's the losing coach, Greg Popovich. One of the Heat, Miami, the other of the San Antonio Spurs. And often when a series concludes in sports, especially in the NBA, the exultant winning players will gather together to congratulate each other, and the losing team will gather together to console one another. But this was different this year. The minute it was over, at the end of the seven-game series, as far as the series could have possibly been taken, the team started embracing each other. Actually, what came before this, I couldn't get a picture of it, was Greg Popovich kissing Dwayne Wade. It was such an incredible, such an incredible series. They knew they had partaken of something that was for the ages. I mean, basketball, in my humble opinion, hasn't been this good since Dr. J was doing his thing here in Philly, and Bird and Magic were doing their things on the coast, and a guy named Michael Jordan was just coming about in Chicago. It's been about three decades since basketball was this good, and they knew that was how good their play was. And so as I texted to a friend who knows much more about basketball than I do, I said, tonight, the real winner was the game itself. That's what this amazing competition revealed. The movie for today is all about competition, about being a football fan, about being a baseball fan, about a dance competition, about trying to win back someone's heart who you have caused to lose. And it's set right here in the Philadelphia region, all throughout this region. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, it's about a guy named... Um, Actually, I can't forget and remember his name, so we'll just call him Bradley Cooper. It's the actor. Bradley Cooper is the guy who plays him. And he has just been released from a mental hospital where he has been involuntarily incarcerated because he had undiagnosed diagnosed bipolar disorder, which showed itself at times in a very violent streak. And one of the things I liked about this movie is that it was an honest look at what a life with mental illness can be. Bradley Cooper, who is living at home with his parents, trying to put his life back together, trying to re-win the heart of his estranged wife, who his actions have distanced him from. And his mantra throughout this entire movie, work your hardest and you've got a shot at a silver lining. Work your hardest and you've got a shot at a silver lining. Work hard and you can still win is what he's saying. Even in spite of it all, you've got a shot at a silver lining. We live in sometimes a brutally competitive age, an age in which winning is celebrated and losing can be awful. And the characters in this movie have lost a lot, lost life savings, lost loves, as I mentioned, even for one main character, the loss of the life most precious to her other than her own before we ever meet her. I mean, there is a lot of cutthroat competition in this world. We hear it in the numbers just this past year. 1%, 99%, 47%. I don't think there has ever been a society that has had as many award shows as our society does. <laughs> 
And by the way, I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think that says anything real good about us at all. The meanings we bring to our competition, to our games, to our awards, they matter a great deal. I like competition. I enjoy competition. But that competition, to be truly enjoyable, not just for me, but for others, has to be grounded in something bigger than just winning or losing. I've showed you this slide before, if you've been at Wellsprings before. This, that kind of talks about the different energies of our lives. On the top, it says active and passive. On the side, it says abundance and scarcity. The top is the level of our engagement with life. The side are the kind of resources that we think we're playing with in this life. And so if we have a passive lack of engagement with life and we think resources are scarce, we're going to do a lot of this, what's in quadrant number one, the green one here, comparing ourselves. Are we up? Are we down? We move over to quadrant number two. If we're active but we consider resources to be scarce, we'll spend a lot of our lives in competition. If we're passive, not terribly engaged, but we consider resources to be abundant, we can tend to be maybe appreciative of what others are doing. And then finally, in that fourth quadrant, if we're active and abundant, we can find ourselves engaging in more cooperative activities and ways of being. Competition, number two, active and scarce. I like competition, (laughs) but I really like competition that's grounded in something more than just winning or losing, grounded in something that's bigger than just scarcity. We can hear a voice given to this by Phil Jackson. You all know Phil Jackson? All right. Well, he won two championships with the New York Knicks, my team. Last one, I was three years old. I don't remember it. And then he won nine championships as coach of the Bulls and then the Lakers. Now, he is sometimes called the Zen master derisively by other people in the basketball game, but he is a real Zen practitioner. And it's said of Phil Jackson by someone who knows him very well, Phil is obsessed with competition, but Phil is not at all obsessed with winning. Think about that, to be obsessed with competition, but not with winning or losing. Now, what does this look like? I will tell you what told me about this abundant sense of competition. What taught me about it is this. Is this. (laughs) Is prune juice. (laughs) Prune juice taught me about the thrill of competition. I I don't know where you're going. The thrill of competition without being obsessed about winning or losing. And this is the story. I'm sure by this point it's apocryphal, a myth, and I've added to it over the years, but that's the way great stories are. It involves a college that I went to and two guys who were roommates their first year of college before I was ever there. And as they were getting to know each other, they went out that first week of school, their first week at school, first week of first year, and let's say had they had a few adult refreshments. They woke up the next morning not feeling so great. And Steve, we'll call him Steve, said Dan, we'll call him Dan, come on, get out of bed, let's go, let's go meet some people, let's go into town. And Dan said, no, I I feel too awful, I don't want to go, come on, get your butt out of bed, let's go. Dan, no, I I don't want to go. And by the way, while you're out, would you prick me up some juice? Maybe a Gatorade? Maybe something to make me feel a little bit better? And Steve is annoyed. Who is this guy asking me already to run errands for him? 
And he goes back out, meets up with some people, and he comes back in. Dan's still in bed, still laying around. And he said, here's your juice. And he presents him with a bottle of prune juice. Dan does not open the bottle of prune juice. He's already feeling ill. And here begins a friendly competition. It's amazing with competition, we even need to say that word friendly competition as if competition itself is supposed to be acrimonious. But this was a competition in which each had to better the other to see how they could hand back that bottle of prune juice. And so at the end of the first year, with the last exam that Steve took, what did he find waiting for him? Dan had put the bottle of prune juice waiting for him with that last exam he was going to take. When Dan went to do a year abroad, I don't know, in Rome or Dublin or Paris or London or Dakar or wherever, the other friend mailed the bottle of prune juice to him. So it was there waiting for him. And then seemingly the, the coup de grace, actually, no, no, I forgot one, that one of them was writing their honors thesis their senior year, and with a little misdirection from a friend of theirs, had the friend as they were walking into the library just about the same time every night, as they were walking up, a friend said, look over there. And the other guy got up on top of the library on the end of fishing line, lowered the prune juice down right into his line of sight. Till finally, this is, would be the coup de grace graduation day, and the president of the college reaches around to give Steve or Dan or whatever the names were their diploma, diploma, and prune juice. <laughs> Game, set, match. And actually, I'd like to think that wasn't the end of it. I'd like to think that with the next generation, maybe, if they had kids that got passed on, retirement parties as they age, they would recognize that this competition could continue their entire lives and perhaps even beyond their entire lives. See, the competition fed the friendship and fed the connection. One of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings is about cultivating gardens of abundance and joy. Now, people, I think, often have immature understandings of abundance as if abundance means having a lot of stuff. Well, if that's true, I know a lot of people who have a lot of stuff and live totally in the scarcity mindset. Abundance is this. Abundance is living with that mindset of highly collaborative, highly cooperative ways of being. That's what Steve and Dan were doing. They were practicing abundance where staying in the game was the key thing. It's not about winning or losing. There's a wonderful little book simply titled Finite and Infinite Games by a guy named James Karst. Maybe you've seen it over the years. It's a thin little book. I encourage you to pick it up. And it's all about the difference between finite games. I win, you lose. You win, I lose, we stop playing. Versus infinite games, which is what Steve and Dan were doing. Staying in the game for the pleasure of playing the game itself. That's where competition can be a wonderful thing. Discovery, connection, making the game, whatever that game is, whatever games you're playing, just the point of being there and being alive. But when winning is seen as ending the game itself, making it finite, making you a loser, making me a winner, or vice versa, this is where we run into problems. That's where I want to go back to the movie. Jennifer Lawrence, who plays the dance competition partner and the kind of burgeoning love interest of the Bradley Cooper character, she promises to help him get back in touch with his estranged wife. 
if he will dance with her in this competition. At one point, Bradley Cooper shows up at her dance studio, and he's wearing an Eagles jersey, and he's carrying a copy of Lord of the Flies, and she says, "Uh uh-uh, football and Lord of the Flies stays outside. Now, that's just not a little funny one-liner. That's about her recognizing that in the family that Bradley Cooper comes from, football is treated as an us-versus-them thing. The Eagles rooting family, the kind of nuts, fanatic rooting family that it comes from is about us versus them. And y'all remember Lord of the Flies? Maybe you were forced to read it, Uh, you know? It's about these, you know, two groups of kids, or actually one group of kids who get stranded on a desert island, and they become two groups of kids because what happens, they stop collaborating. They stop working together, and you have negative, painful outcomes, vicious competition. This is what we also call greed, a kind of winner-take-all attitude to winning or losing that is sadly far too much a part of our society. I love the way that the Buddhist tradition talks about greed. It calls it a hindrance, a mental defilement. I love that. A defilement of self and of other. And by the way, this has been studied fairly extensively. Societies that have a winner-take-all, greedy approach to their resources, those societies, including ours, by the way, test very high in loneliness and alienation and very low in a terribly important thing, trust. Where there is greed, we see trust diminish. And where there is not trust, so many harmful things can come to be. And what did Vince Lombardi, the the most famous football coach of all time, say? Winning isn't everything. Finish it with me, folks. It's the only thing. You know, he regretted it for decades saying that. (laughs) Because what he was trying to say was, work your absolute hardest, be diligent, give your all, give everything you have. And then, even sometimes, you'll lose. (laughs) But give your utmost. See, if winning is everything, then losing can make us feel like nothing. And when we feel like nothing, we end up treating ourselves and other people really poorly. Because we don't see ourselves as partners anymore. We tend to see ourselves as either absolute victors or absolute victims. There's another quote from the movie that really struck me. And it's about learning to go beyond merely winning or losing in our competitions. It's by Robert De Niro, who plays the father of the main character. And I think will go down with me, and I've seen almost pretty much every movie Robert De Niro's ever done. It'll be one of my favorite performances of his. Now, he plays a guy who is so unhinged that he has been banned from Lincoln Financial Field because he's got in so many fights there. Remind you of any Eagles fans, you know? (laughs) But the thing is, he really wants to watch the games now because he has to watch them from home with his son. His son who is hard to reach. His son who does not appear to be interested in a relationship with him. And he's pleading with his son, watch with me. Let's watch together. And he says, all this Eagles stuff... 
It's about us spending time together. That really hit home for me. Most Sundays in the fall, after I'm here with you all, I take Route 100 north to the Lehigh Valley, and I watch, sorry, not the Eagles, the Giants games with my dad. Of course, there are individual wins and losses that I remember. I remember, yes, of course, the two Super Bowls in the last six years. <laughs> sorry, Eagles fans. Someday you might know what this feels like. <laughs> but it's about much more than the wins and the losses. All this giant stuff, it's about my dad and I spending time together. It's about the fact that the season starts in the late summer, and they live on the Little Lehigh River, and when we start watching games in the window beyond where the television is, you can't even see the river and the way it flows because the brush is growing so high. And by the time the season ends, all that brush in winter is dead, and you can see the river flow. We walked along that river coming up eight autumns ago when I had to tell my dad that I was quitting drinking. I watched games with him when he was in his hospital bed last autumn, which was supposed to be a five or seven day visit. It became a 19 day visit. All that giant stuff, it's about him and me spending time together. This is where the competition opens up to something much more than just wins or losses. It's about connection. This is the essence, by the way, of being a fan without becoming a fanatic. <laughs> and many people, including myself at times, lose that difference. Because fanatics, whether it's sports, whether it's countries, whether it's economies, whether it's religions, Fanatics are all about saying, I must win, so you must lose. And if you win, I will absolutely lose. Fanatics make it about a finite game. Who gets the victory shower and who gets sent to the showers? Who gets crowned and who gets captured in a religious sense, in a spiritual sense? Who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? But that's not our tradition. And so to be a universalist fan is yes to say we may have our rooting allegiances. But to be a universalist fan is to say this. That to believe that creation itself is an infinite game. And to have the chance to play, which is to say to have the chance to be alive at all, that is the most glorious thing. In this way we can learn as the characters in the movie learn, to lose without shame or lose without bitterness, to win without arrogance, and to win with this sense, this sense of gratitude for the game itself. And by the way, I'm obviously talking about much more than just a sports game. By the way, this movie takes place during this time period, the fall of 2008. Philly, as you all know, does not have a great sports winning tradition. <laughs> but this fall was pretty exceptional. I was there that game, by the way, Game 6, World Series, and even as a Yankees fan, it was pretty amazingly thrilling. The Eagles made a late push to the playoffs unexpectedly that year. 
still lost anyway. But it was a thrilling season to be a Philadelphia sports fan or in this region. But regardless of whatever teams we do or do not root for, what we know is this, is that it is the rarest of seasons that ends with the final victory. It's a rare season that ends with the championship. Most end with losses, with not winning it all. And by the way, it's the same with our lives. It's the same with who and what we love. Those of you who are older than me know this far more than I do. If we're lucky enough, blessed enough to live a long life, we know there are many things that we get to enjoy, but also one thing particularly that maybe we don't enjoy so much, but we know we have to do. If we're lucky enough to live a long life, we know that it means saying a lot of goodbyes. But loss does not have to be love's enemy if we have that infinite, abundant mindset. Loss does not have to be love's enemy. Loss instead can reveal the depth of what we love. How do we approach losses and goodbyes gracefully? This poem, for me, does it extraordinarily well. Some of you have seen it before. It's by Raymond Carver, who died in his 40s, who lived much of his life treating himself and other people shabbily, and then woke up in his 40s and got his stuff together. He was an incredibly gifted novelist, and then found out he was dying of cancer. And so he penned this late fragment. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so is the question. And the answer, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. That's learning to say goodbye gracefully. I think we all know in our lives the necessity of that even so. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? Even so. Silver linings or simply and more anciently, grace. Life is tough enough on its own. <laughs> we all know this. In the past, not so much now anymore, but in the past, I was known to have kind of a pessimistic personality, always waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's changed, thankfully. But when I was ordained, the minister gave the charge to me, knowing that this was, you know, something I struggled with. He said, life is difficult enough, so don't neglect joy. <laughs> Those words have stayed with me. He was telling me, remember even so. Life is tough enough on its own. And so to remember playfulness. I know it's hot today, so maybe, you know, don't give yourself a stroke out there playing catch, but go out and, and, and play in the dirt. <laughs> go and build sandcastles. Go and dance. Go have that game of catch at dusk. And maybe just try and be grateful. That here we are, 
even so. That there are silver linings, even so. That we are in the game, even so. And we are all, all of us called to play. May it be so. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O infinite source without boundary or measure, O infinite source that calls us here into this day, may we bring our full selves, our full selves to whatever games we are playing, to find joy and zest in our effort, in our exuberance, regardless of the outcome. May we strive and reach and be diligent on our efforts and never in pursuing a goal, no matter how noble a goal that is, just make it about the goal itself. May we be called this day to play in the gardens and the fields of abundance of our lives. And we know ourselves blessed with joy. Amen.